questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Welcome to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is the podcast that helps you close the gap between what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. Hey, everybody, welcome back to part two of my two-part conversation with Andy Kolber. And interestingly, we're talking about trauma, which involves talking all about the messiness of life. And as I am recording this in my soundproof studio, if you were to watch me now, you would see my air quotes on either side of me. Um, In the messiness of life, there is a jackhammer outside of my window during this pre-scheduled time to record these introductions, and so such is life. Uh, I'm going to tell my sound engineer to leave it in just because uh, mindfulness and self-compassion and these ideas of non-judgmental acceptance, which are talked about, especially in this part of our conversation, can all be applied right now as I'm recording this uh, when I'm up on the sixth floor and I can hear that noise down below. Who said that I'm a control freak? Anyway, my guest today is Andy Kolber, and this is part two of a two-part conversation with her. Andy is a licensed professional counselor in Colorado, where she practices in Castle Rock, Colorado. She attended and earned her degree in clinical counseling at Denver Seminary. She's married and has a daughter and son who are the joys of her heart. She's a writer and a speaker, and her work has been featured in Relevant, CT Women, The Huffington Post, The Mud Room, Happy Sonship, and Circling the Story. In this podcast, we hope that you will discover this idea of a trauma-informed perspective. If you are counseling or seeking counseling or recommending a counselor, why it's important if somebody has abuse or trauma or attachment issues in their background to have a counselor that is, quote, trauma-informed. We're going to talk about different ways that people get stuck the importance of self-compassion and mindfulness. And this was my favorite part of this conversation because we throw around the phrase mindfulness to the point where it it really doesn't have meaning. And so we define that. We talk about self-compassion as a way of overcoming shame and as a way of being able to continue to live free from the binds of shame. I love what uh, Andy said here, and we put this quote on the homepage of this interview, but simply that shame is a catalyst for change. And as we unpack that idea, I hope that that and other aspects of this conversation are encouraging to you, whether you're a caregiver, counselor, or just someone who is seeking to live with your soul restored. So let's jump into my conversation, part two, with Andy Colbert. First of all, you said something that I never thought of it this way before, but you said, if I heard you correctly, that shame becomes its own kind of trauma in terms of how that plays out in the body. So tell me more about that. Shame stimulates the same response, the physiological response of the the crisis of I am, you know, there's a threat. And the threat is if you think about when you're young, what do you need? One of the biggest things we need is connection. So shame at its core is disconnection. And so when we are sort of immersed in shame, we are, our body is experiencing that as a threat, which then physiologically is experienced as trauma. And so when that's wired in super young, 
right? You think about how our brain from that bottom up, um, how it grows, that you know, you can have all this knowledge about who God is and how loved you are and even great therapeutic techniques and facts. But when that lower level wiring is in that in place, um, it's sort of like just like any other trauma that when it's activated, it's super powerful and potent. And we're going to be more apt to experiencing things that might not even be intentionally supposed to be shaming as shame. Um, and so I think it's just, it's another piece of, you know, I would, I would say that it's a subset of psychological trauma. Got it. That's so helpful to think about. So how do you see this play out in relationships and specifically um, intimate relationships, whether it's a, 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 a marriage or a, uh, people that uh, are dating or something like that. We have a, a PDF that will soon be available. Um, hopefully by the time this is broadcast, it, it's been available. Um, but it's called Five Ways That Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And when you talk about this shame, I can just imagine like bells and whistles going off. And I've certainly had this experience where I perceive things that Julianne has said as shaming when in fact it's very neutral, mm. like a request, you know, to go get something at the grocery store, and I react, uh, saying like, you know, why, why are you saying that I'm a, a bad shopper? You know, something <laughs> utterly irrational, mm -hmm. um, and it just becomes a filter. So, where have you seen that play out? Yeah, I mean, I think it's you know, relationships are often where, for sure, the sort of the stomping ground of this stuff, um, because so much of it happened in relationship. I mean, it really primarily happened in relationship. And I think what I find, just like what you're saying, is that the more subconscious it is, so the more that we are unaware of our own story, of the you know, sort of all the, the parts that have been super painful. I think the it, just like when we talk about like a shadow side, that the more we repress that, it, it's easier for that to sort of um, be triggered more quickly. And so what I find is that when people um, have not sort of explored the terrain of, of their childhood and, um, you know, some of their earliest connections and things like that. And when it also includes shame, there are a lot more instances where in their interactions with people who are closest to them, they are not perceiving correctly situations. Now, given sometimes someone might shame them. And that right. happens too, right? Like those are both true. Um, but what, like what I would say, because this is part of my own story, and like with my husband, is that the more that we both do our own work and we're m both more aware of like our own sort of tender spots um, and even the window of tolerance, again, sometimes if I'm kind of close to my edge, I can just vocally say like, I actually can't really hear that right now could we come back to this you know but I would say earlier on in our marriage we didn't have the skills um, it just you know we just flew off it was it was much more in that fight or flight right anger like you're trying to hurt me you're you know this is your fault um, versus I think the more that we can 
even when we're not triggered, I think would especially be true, have conversations and say, when I'm beginning to feel overwhelmed, I need to be able to say that to you. And I need you to be able to support me if I need to take a break, things like that, because then it creates safety. Yeah. We see this all the time in our intensive counseling clients where they've been to counselors, they've gone to workshops, they've read books, usually about communication or some new theory about having a good marriage. And it works for about a week uh, or until the second or third counseling session. Not that those things can't be helpful, but the reason why it doesn't work is because there's something physiological that's not being addressed, that's getting triggered. This this window of tolerance uh, is closing, and then they don't have the skills or the language to be able to communicate that to one mm-hmm. another. So do you work with clients uh, to help them? Uh, have that language and then apply it in a relationship? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, some of the earliest work with almost all of my clients is really beginning to build this observing ego, this, this ability to sort of observe ourselves and our emotions. And the more that we can begin to do that, we can then say, like, now that I know about the window of tolerance, we can begin to notice what it feels like when we're at our edge. And then as we do that, we build in resources. That's so funny. We always use the phrase, oh, I'm on edge. Mm. I never thought of that in terms of the window of tolerance. Mm -hmm. The edge is if I go a little bit farther, I'm going to go into fight, fly, or freeze. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think there's a great metaphor from, I think it's somatic psychology that sort of talks about it like like a cup of water. And so the more full the cup is, the more close we are to that edge. Right. And so any disturbance, anything that feels like hard or big fills that cup up more. And so when you think about like if you're going through an intense season of life, if you have a ton of transitions, it could even be good things. Your cup is getting fuller and fuller and fuller. And if we're not aware of that, we can't work with it. And then somebody says something maybe fairly benign and that cup is overflowing and and it doesn't necessarily need to be this huge thing that right. took us over. Right. And so as we begin, I, I love to teach my clients the psychoeducation of understanding their own bodies and really beginning to even just notice the actual body. Like what does what are you noticing in your body when you're anxious? And where do you notice that? And and what about if we could just we don't even have to fix it right now. <laughs> like we could just be with it. Right. And that in and of itself actually builds their window of tolerance over time, which is tremendously helpful, especially for folks who've experienced chronic trauma. Yeah, because you're not just powerless and at the mercy of adrenaline and cortisol, you know, running through your bloodstream and feeling absolutely flooded and overwhelmed. Yes. And for anybody who's experienced trauma, there's at least one moment always, by definition, of trauma because you're you're overwhelmed and without resources. Absolutely. Yep. You have written a book. Uh, You've written extensively. You're part of uh, several networks. You're a blogger. Tell me a little bit about some of the writing you've done. And you have a book. And I know that uh, it's top secret. We can't necessarily <laughs> talk about the details of it, but uh, there's something in the works where the public will soon see you launched in a major motion picture on paper, <laughs> as they say. But uh, yeah, I'm excited about that. So tell me about your writing. 
Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of funny. Probably about four or five years ago, we actually were going through a season of infertility. And I... I had a lot of feelings and was trying to figure out how to move through those. And what I began to understand is that as I explored writing, it was kind of like this really cool resource that began to develop for me. Um, All these ideas that I had that kind of started in one area and really grew to be about a a whole perspective around integrating um, faith and psychology and and often that trauma-informed perspective and somatic psychology. And so over time, my desire to share more about my story has just really grown and continued. And so, you know, I've done some writing for like Relevant and Christianity Today and things like that. And often it's through this lens of what does it look like to really be alive? What does it look like to live in our body and to know that God is really with us? And for me, I think... Um, there are so many facets to explore, but oftentimes I don't think we always talk about as Christians what it means to be really human. And so a lot of my writing um, addresses the things that you, we're talking about here, um, and, and but a lot of it is also through the lens of my own story um, as a survivor of trauma, as a as a very deep feeler um, over here, you know, which I proudly own. Um, I love educating people on um, what does it look like to, you know, sort of move through hard things rather than get stuck there. And so, you know, my heart has really been to equip people to help them experience hope and to know that, you know, God is with them and, and is able to empower them as they're walking through really hard things. Um, around this whole idea of becoming more human. I've often said on this podcast that Christians often mistakenly think that the more, quote, Christ-like we become, the less human we become. And I think that that's demonic, that that, that <laughs> idea, you know, that, that God came and put on flesh this idea of the incarnation because he loves the material world. Mm. And again, back to this Grecian idea or enlightenment idea that that spirit is good and matter is bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but but uh, it's always staggering me, to me to think that uh, at least one historic interpretation of Jesus after the resurrection, this idea of ascension, is that one-third of the Trinity, Jesus, exists today with a body hmm. in heaven. Mm-hmm. You know, and it says that he's at the right hand of God, and, and so today God has a body. It wasn't just 33 years. That mm. That's how much he honors creation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love that idea of being human. So talk specifically about what your book is about. Do you have a working title? Um, and what do you hope to communicate in it? Yeah. So my my book, the, the working title for now, and, and obviously that could change, but it's Becoming Whole. And the reason why, you know, I, I've chosen that at least as a framework to talk about this is that it's basically about integration on every level. It's like integration of our like our brain, you know, so one one version of talking about trauma work is that our brain, our resource part of our brain is able to talk to the parts that are wounded. But that's also true for, you know, it's like our faith integrating with our psychology. Um, It's our story being fully integrated into who we are. And so it's this idea that we're not moving towards perfection, per se, but we are by God's grace, moving towards wholeness. 
and being and and for me being human being fully human is being whole is moving towards that wholeness yeah and so there's still definitely work to be done here in terms of developing the book but a lot of it is about my own story and really getting to the point where i recognized how deeply i wanted to be whole and also that i wanted to leverage that so that other people would experience wholeness oh that's cool and then essentially building off of that to to bring in some psychological theories um, like attachment, um, interpersonal neurobiology, uh, mindfulness, um, some of these different really um, somatic somatic psychology for sure, and just sort of bringing it into an integrative perspective of of again what does that look like to bring all these pieces together, these relational pieces, but also um, what would it take for us to begin to be able to be kind to ourselves to even do the work. So I always come back to this idea of stuckness. Um, I think a lot of people know about a lot of things in their head. But most of us, many of us, have experienced times that we can't access that. So in a way, we're kind of knocking at that door. What would it look like to be able to access what we already know? Wow, that would be huge. And if you could give people a pathway for that that would be like the cure for cancer in some ways right because 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 most of us you're right we we do know the answer Mm. what's the old story about the little kid that walks into sunday school and the teacher says bushy tail what is a bushy tail eats acorns climbs in trees and rhymes with girl and the kid says i want to say squirrel but i know jesus is the right answer we all know the right answer um but to access it or to experience it is the hard part. And what you're saying is that it actually has something to do with the brain, with our story, and how our body has been shaped by trauma, our attachment, uh, which is our our biological ability to bond and feel safe with others. Um, And then spirituality is not just a slice of that pie, but spirituality is integrated into all of that. Yes, absolutely. And I think I loved what you were saying just a bit ago about... um, an incarnational life. And and what I find is that we can talk really well about the, these things again, but I think the body is the one of the key pieces that we often leave out, even when we don't mean to, <laughs> because we live in a culture um, that promotes often cutting ourselves off from our body in order to to be the best or to succeed or um, to be strong or perceived as strong. And, you know, I think, I just don't think it's an accident that God created us to be, um, to have a system the way that we do, that trauma in particular and feeling feelings um, happen when we are fully living in our body. Like, it's not a coincidence to me that all of these things are connected and that in order to really be able to move through hard things, we have to actually be living in our body. And like so many things, there's this paradox that being disconnected from your body uh, can be either the very worst thing because of things that have happened and all that happens in our body the research around how when we're disconnected from our body, there's autoimmune issues, chronic pain issues, um, all kinds of physical vulnerabilities. It can be the worst thing or it can be the best thing. 
in terms of allowing our body to kind of mediate mm. uh, our emotional world, our spiritual world, um, and our relational world. Mm. It, it takes on a richness that we wouldn't otherwise have. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's interesting as a spiritual director, when people come to me and they say, well, I just, I can't connect with God, or I just feel like God is so far away. How oftentimes it comes down to not that they don't have the information or haven't learned about how to do spiritual practices or disciplines, but how they can't be present to themselves because they're disconnected from their body or they're in a fight, flight, freeze mode. And um, I'll always use Brother Lawrence's phrase of practicing the presence of God. How can you practice the presence of God if you can't practice being present to yourself? So back to your idea of this lens, this trauma-informed lens, I I like to think of that as helping people be um, present to themselves and to be able to inhabit their life from the inside out. Um, What do people do? We would be remiss if we didn't talk about the what now. Hmm. Um, So two questions and then we'll wrap up. What would you say to the person who's listening to this and says, oh, this is really important. I'm going to go tell my girlfriend about this. Hmm. Or the husband who says, this is such a good podcast because I've learned all about what's wrong with my wife now. Uh, or maybe it's the wife saying that about the right. husband. <laughs> um, but but they have really significant stuff in their past that any counselor or even a good friend would go, whoa. But they go, I'm good. That that didn't affect me, or I'm past that. My first question is, what would you say to that person? And then secondly, uh, maybe a couple bullet points about if a person knows or thinks that they are living out of trauma and they've not taken steps to deal with that, what they would do. Hmm. If you're listening and you feel ready to reach out to a therapist, I think connecting with someone who is fully trained in trauma, who has maybe experience in something like EMDR, um, somatic experiencing, those types of lenses, I, I do think is a great step. But maybe you're listening and, and you're not quite there yet. What I would often encourage people to do is just to begin to be curious. And just, you don't even have to do anything with it. <laughs> like, just begin to notice your reactions to things. And, you know, one of the terms I sometimes use is dis- a disproportionate reaction to situations. And so you, if, if you're kind of just wondering if you might even be in this sort of category, I would just encourage you to begin to, to pay attention to what your reactions are to certain situations. And if you had somebody that you feel that is, you know, a person that is safe for you. So they're not going to shame you if you share something hard. Um, they're not going to use this against you. Um, that's kind of a, a working definition of what maybe I would say is safe. Um, to be able to say, hey, here's what happened and here's how I reacted. And just and just out of curiosity, getting some feedback on if that feels like, hmm, is this how someone, like going back to that student at the beginning, you know, like, Get my professor giving me feedback on a quiz. Is it, do you think it's a too big of a reaction for someone to throw their desk? <laughs> and maybe just get some feedback and see what that's like. And then see if you how, can. How, how far did they throw it? That would be the big <laughs> question. And hopefully we didn't, hopefully there was no one injured in that. Right. But like you could just, you could just see what that's like. And I think curiosity is super underrated. 
And it often um, is a great way it, in our brain, it keeps us in a part of our brain that is, um, you know, we're not living out of our fight or flight response, essentially. So if we can, if you can stay with curiosity while you're just examining this, I would super highly encourage that. And if it leads you to a point, I think it's great to reach out to a therapist, like I mentioned at the beginning. And then the second question, can you say it one more time for me? Are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? <laughs> no, I can't remember the question myself. No, it was, um, what would you say to someone who has what we would consider a significant trauma history, but they say, I'm good, that didn't affect me? Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of ways it would it would probably be a similar response because we have to begin to even notice. I mean, if you feel like you would um, be comfortable just beginning to develop a relationship with a therapist, um, even if you're like, I just want to prove to you that this didn't affect me. Right. I think that's great. Like, you know, tell that to your therapist and see if you guys can just sort of prove them wrong. You know, I think that's a great place to start. Um, but I think relationships are so valuable in our process of healing. So if you're not in a place where you're ready to see a therapist, I, again, finding someone who is safe by that same definition of, you know, won't shame you, won't hold it against you, and just even begin to exploring that with them, I think, is a great place to start. And, you know, again, it's like developing that observing ego of noticing what your responses are like, noticing are there times that you don't feel connected to yourself, are there times when you don't feel like you're in your body? Are there times when, like Michael and I were saying earlier, that we you're speaking with someone and maybe it is a pretty average conversation and suddenly you find yourself not able to breathe and your heart is racing? Those are the types of things I would encourage you to be curious about. Fantastic. This has been such a good conversation, and uh, like so many of the conversations that I have on this podcast, I would love to have you come back and um, to dig deeper, and certainly when your book comes out, which I can't wait for people to be able to read, and um, you honored me with letting me see, I think, two chapters on the front end. Just great, great stuff. So um, thanks for this time today. Thanks, Michael. You've been listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick, produced by Brian Beatty and supported by generous listeners like you. To learn more about our life-changing intensive counseling process for couples and individuals, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. You already know we live in a pornified world, but most of us are at a loss for how to navigate this sea of temptation. It's either ceaseless striving on the one hand or giving in to brokenness on the other. But doesn't the gospel offer us another way? The truth is that our sexual struggles are not actually about sex, but about a misdirected, God-given longing for deep connection. Dig deeper in my book, Surfing for God, Discovering the Divine Desire Beneath Sexual Struggle. 